0: Uh, Luke 21, verses 5 through 38, lengthier section today. It's always helpful to have a copy of God's Word in front of you as it's being preached, but today I really think it's absolutely necessary if you're going to follow along as we try to understand this passage together. It's probably safe to say that uh, one of the topics that always... Interests people and captivates Christians uh, is the topic of prophecy and the end times. I was actually just talking to one of you before the service about the end times. Um, This is a passage that people will often turn to to think about the end times. Uh, They believe, you know, Jesus is speaking here about signs. Uh, At the end of this age, so uh, here's how people often approach this text. Okay, Jesus is talking about the end of the world, the end of time. Um, So what sort of signs should we be looking for that indicate that we're nearing the end? Okay, wars and rumors of wars, tumults, uh, earthquakes, famine, pestilence, and so forth. Those are the sorts of things. Okay, then there are going to be these false teachers and false messiahs popping up. And then the Son of Man will come in power and glory and the the world as we know it will come to an end. That's a popular way of reading Luke 21 and large parts of the same discourse in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. But today I want to suggest a very different, significantly different way of reading this passage. And what we need to try to do together today is put ourselves in the shoes of Jesus' disciples who are hearing this teaching firsthand. We have to think, how would someone who is listening to Jesus, how would they have understood what he was saying to them? And here's just my summary in a nutshell of what I think is going on here in Luke chapter 21. Jesus is narrowly focused on events leading up to and surrounding the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, uh, which occurred in 70 AD. Okay, now with with that in mind, Jesus is preparing his disciples for this cataclysmic event. Okay, with that in mind, let's read the text and see if it fits and helps us understand what Jesus is saying. Let's give our attention to God's word picking it up in verse 5, reading through the end of the chapter. While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray. And great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. There will be great distress upon the earth, or perhaps upon the land, and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity, Because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, again, perhaps upon the land. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, or again, perhaps the whole land would be a better way to read it. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man, and every day He was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Well, I think we can understand the, to some degree, the sense of shock the disciples must have felt when people are admiring this great structure, this great building, the temple in Jerusalem. You know, looking at these marble stones that are half the size of this room, this building that took decades to build, this building that was fundamental to Israel's identity, this one building in all of the earth about which God had said, there I will make my dwelling, there I will meet with you. This building to which the people of Israel would go and gather and experience the liturgy of worship and receive the assurance of the forgiveness of their sins. This building that was basic to Israel's identity and Jesus says, I tell you, a day is coming when not one stone will be left upon another. For those listening to Jesus, the Destruction of the temple meant nothing less than the end of the world as they knew it. Now, it it didn't carry the same significance for anybody else. And it's important we understand that in order to understand this passage. But for the Jews, it was that significant. To Jews in these days, it would have been impossible to separate from one another the destruction of the temple and the end of the world. (coughs) Excuse me. It It wouldn't be possible for the people to go on living any longer the way that they did. Life as they knew it would come to an end with the destruction of the temple. And Jesus here is speaking in prophetic terms about what lies ahead. And I think here's a key I want to give you at the beginning to reading this passage. Okay? Did you note that consistently throughout this passage, Jesus speaks in the second person, pronoun, you, 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 you again and again. Now, here's here's the key. You are not the you that Jesus is referring to. Right? I, I wasn't there. You weren't there. Jesus is speaking to these disciples who who are with him, and he's seeking to prepare them for events that lie ahead of them in their own lifetime. So we need to go back to what he's saying to his disciples to catch what he wants to teach them in order to rightly understand the passage and then make application. So let's try to walk through this passage together today. And in the first paragraph, verses 5 through 9, Jesus teaches his disciples to be on guard. To be on guard. After making this (laughs) shocking prophecy about the destruction of the temple... Uh, he's talking about how the temple is going to be destroyed and not rebuilt. And then in verses 8 and 9, he tells them to be on guard because of some of the things leading up to the destruction of the temple. They're, they're going to cause mass confusion and panic. And you know, whenever there, is, whenever there is confusion and panic, that's prime time for false teachers to step onto the, to the scene. And to start peddling their message, isn't it? Right? And so all of these things are happening. in the run up to the destruction of the temple in the area. And there's mass confusion and panic. And false teachers are beginning to say, I'm the Christ. Or I have this special knowledge from the Lord. Come and follow me and I will, I will show you the way. Now, we, we've seen that sort of thing in our own day. Some of you, some of you maybe remember the, the panic surrounding the... Uh, the, the year 2000, among many evangelical Christians, and some of you, I was only, let's see, I was only 14, but I can still remember people popping up and saying, look, I have, I have this information that you really need to understand, this teaching from some hidden message in the Bible that you really need to get if you're going to cope with the catastrophe of the year 2000. A total panic because some great catastrophic event was about to take place. But you see, the thing in general that Jesus is teaching here, that he specifically is applying to the run-up and eventual destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, is, I think, a, a, a principle that we find in the Old Testament. But it's, it's this idea that faith and panic don't run together. Faith and panic don't work together. Panic is not an evidence of faith. Poise. Poise in the midst of catastrophe and mass confusion and panic is a mark of faith. So I think he's saying, dear disciples, when these things begin to take place, don't panic. Be on your guard. And he's picking up, I think, from a theme in the book of Isaiah. You remember how? Isaiah puts it, that he will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon the Lord. And so there's this general principle which Jesus is applying particularly to the destruction of the temple. In the midst of this catastrophic event, do not panic, be on your guard. And actually that's one of the ways that they would be witnesses (coughs) for Christ. It's one of the ways that we... May be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ in, in the midst of souls giving way, living with the confidence that, that the Lord is your strength and stay. And so be on your guard, he says. And in the second paragraph, verses 10 through 19, Jesus teaches his disciples to be ready for opposition, to be prepared. For opposition, As if the destruction of the temple news wasn't alarming enough. Now Jesus says, you, you, my disciples, are going to experience persecution. Yes, nation will rise against nation. Earthquakes, famines, pestilences. All of which, by the way, you can read in the historical records leading up to 70, 70 AD. All the kinds of things, though, that would, would result in mass panic. But before all this... Jesus says they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And again, dear friends, you are not the you that Jesus is speaking to here. If you read through volume two of Luke's work, you know, the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, this is virtually a preview of what will be unfolded In the book of Acts. This is essentially a a trailer, a clip of what's going to unfold in these men's apostolic ministries. So here's the question, though how are they to view this opposition? How does Jesus want them to conceive of the persecution that they will face? It's there in verse 13. This will be your opportunity. To bear witness. Now that's not how we're prone to think about it, is it? (laughs) If we're honest. You know, somebody's being dragged off. Beaten. Taken before the authorities. Interrogated with questions. Jesus says, that's your opportunity to bear witness to me. Now that's something we can surely apply to ourselves. You know, we, we tend to respond to the slightest opposition with... Something like, oh man, this this is awful. Let me get out of here. I want out of this. And Jesus is saying, don't miss the opportunity. In fact, I will be with you in the opportunity. I will be with you to help you. Don't, Don't be anxious about what you are going to say in advance. Because I will give you the words to speak. It's a great comfort the Lord Jesus is giving his disciples. And in verses 16 and 18, he gives... Further assurance though it's sure it's paradoxical assurance because he says that even if some of you are put to death and some of these disciples were put to death not a hair on your head will perish I don't know about you but when I read that I think I want to say if I was there listening to Jesus I'd say excuse me Jesus did you did you just hear yourself say that again Even if they kill me, not a hair on my head will perish. (laughs) Do you see what Jesus is saying? What what, what he's communicating to his disciples is even if they kill the body. Who is it that's speaking to them? It's the Lord of life who can raise them up. And he's saying, not even a hair on your head will perish. And so he's communicating to his disciples that the only thing you have to fear is fear itself. So be on your guard. Be prepared for opposition. And then in the third paragraph, verses 20 through 24, Jesus tells them to take care when the city of Jerusalem is besieged. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now notice Jesus is still using the second person pronoun as You see these things as these things happen before you. He's speaking to these disciples who are a generation away from the destruction of Jerusalem. And he says when the armies of Rome, you know, led by uh, which we know from historical data, uh, when the army surrounds Jerusalem, led by General Titus, that's the time to flee. That's the time to get out of the city. So you see what Jesus is saying if you put these two paragraphs alongside of one another he's saying on the one hand there's going to be a time to face opposition and persecution there's going to be a time to take up to take a stand and be counted to suffer for the sake of my name but there is also coming a time for well strategic retreat Jesus is saying when the armies of Jerusalem the armies of Rome surround Jerusalem That's a time for strategic retreat. It's not a battle I'm calling you to fight. And so Jesus is communicating, I think, that there's a time in his purposes when they should leave Jerusalem for the sake of the gospel. So that, as we'll talk about in just a few moments, the dominion of the Son of Man may be internationalized and the gospel may go forth to the nations. Now, before we look at the next paragraph, let me me just mention in passing a really helpful statement from our Confession of Faith, which you can take a look at it in the hymnal if you want to. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, in the chapter on Scripture, first chapter, there's this statement. It says, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Okay, so it shouldn't surprise us if if we read that. It shouldn't surprise us if there are things in the Bible and things in this passage which are difficult to understand or even that we don't all equally understand. And I think this next paragraph is one of those difficult passages to understand. Okay, Jesus has been teaching his disciples be on guard, um, be prepared for persecution, be safe when the city of Jerusalem is besieged. And now, in verses 25 through 28, he says, look out for the coming of the Son of Man. Look out for the coming of the Son of Man. Now, Son of Man is Jesus' preferred title of self-designation. It's the way that Jesus often referred to himself throughout the Gospels. And what he's saying is, look out for the coming of the Son of Man. So we need to try to understand what this means. Here's the million-dollar question. What does the coming of the Son of Man mean? Okay, not all Christians are agreed about this, and there are different opinions out there. The majority view, I think it's safe to say, the majority view is that the coming of the Son of Man in power and glory refers to the final return of Christ. And he comes to judge the world and, and redeem his people and usher in a new heavens and a new earth. So the coming of the Son of Man is... a uh, end time event but there's a minority view and for the sake of honesty I think I need to say it is the minority view but it's the position that I hold and I think what Jesus is talking about here this context is still the destruction of Jerusalem uh, and the, the destruction of the temple in verse 27 he says they will see the son of man coming in a cloud uh, with power and great glory. And I think Jesus still has in view the coming judgment upon Jerusalem. So why, why do I say that? Okay, Now it's time to, to do some work together and try to understand this. Uh, the title of Son of Man is a title that Jesus draws from the Old Testament. From the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Particularly uh, worthy of our attention are verses 13 and 14. That's a striking Vision Daniel has seen the son of man coming in the clouds and glory before the throne of the ancient of days. So he approaches the ancient of days and he receives from the ancient of days a kingdom and dominion uh, to rule over all nations that they may serve him. And Daniel goes on to talk about Jesus, uh, the, I believe Jesus is the Son of Man, Son of Man sharing these benefits with those, the benefits of the kingdom, with those who are identified in Daniel as saints of the Most High. So I think that's the context Jesus is alluding to. So why do I say then that Jesus is talking about events surrounding the fall of Jerusalem? Here I want to give you several reasons why I think this is the case. Okay, reason number one. Okay, follow the language with me here. Jesus is prophesying a temporal judgment in apocalyptic terms, just like the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is prophesying a temporal historical judgment in apocalyptic end of the world sort of terms, just like the Old Testament prophets. So the language Jesus uses in verse 25 and 26 is undoubtedly apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. Uh, signs of sun, moon, stars, earth, and distress of nations in perplexity, roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and the foreboding of what is coming upon the world or the land. But if you read the Old Testament prophets speaking about God's judgment on nations in the Old Testament, the very same apocalyptic language, end of the world sort of language, is used to describe describe God's judgment on particular nations surrounding the nation of Israel. And so this use of language about sun, moon, stars, roaring of the sea, it's not not new. Jesus isn't using novel language here. He's actually drawing directly from the Old Testament because this is how the Old Testament prophets spoke about cataclysmic judgments. And so it seems most likely that what Jesus is speaking about is the kind of thing that Isaiah and Ezekiel were speaking about when they used this very same language to describe God's judgment upon nations in the Old Testament period. So Jesus is drawing, I think, from Old Testament expressions as a way of speaking about the severity of God's judgment upon Jerusalem. That's reason number one. Reason number two, okay? You're still probably thinking, okay, how can Jesus speak... About the son of man coming in power and glory. And that be a reference to not his second coming. But the destruction of uh, Jerusalem and the temple. Here's the second reason I think Jesus is still thinking about Jerusalem. Because Daniel chapter 7. Explains the coming of the son of man. So just go back there with me and think about it for a second. In Daniel 7. Verses 13-14, the picture is not of the Son of Man coming at the end of time. The picture is of the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days. His ministry on earth fulfilled, His work on the cross finished, His resurrection having occurred, His ascension. Now coming to the Ancient of Days to receive His kingdom where He was given dominion and glory that all peoples and nations should serve him. So it's an event that took place after Jesus' earthly ministry, not at the end of history. And I think, here's the key, I think he's teaching that one of the signs, one of the ways that the coming of the Son of Man is made visible is that God has given the Son of, uh, of Man dominion to pass judgment on those who have refused his kingdom? Or, in the language of the Gospels, taking the kingdom from one nation, nation and giving it to the other nations. And the people will see that when God comes in vengeance and deconsecrates the temple. In order that from the east and the west and the north and the south, men and women and boys and girls may now come to the true temple that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Third reason. Reason number three, the context here, still Jerusalem. Jesus said everything that he is talking about in this context is going to take place within the lifetime of this generation. Verse 32 Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Now I know some people interpret this generation to refer to the Jewish race, race, or another interpretation is the entirety of sinful humanity. But I just think that is a, a, uh, well, I don't think that's a natural way (laughs) of reading what Jesus is saying to his disciples here, I think people read it that way because they've assumed beforehand that the coming of the Son of Man in power and glory must be a reference to his second coming at the end of this age. But if you read what Jesus says naturally, that this generation will be alive when all of this takes place, then really Jesus is giving you a key to understanding what he's talking about in this entire discourse. At this point, Jesus is still talking about what's going to take place in in regard to the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay, reason number four, I mentioned this earlier, that Matthew and Mark both have their own account of this discourse. But here's what I want to say. Matthew and Mark, uh, their accounts of Jesus' teaching contain a major difference from Luke's. Okay? In Matthew and Mark, this teaching of Jesus continues beyond where Luke takes it. And it's very interesting, there's this striking phrase, you know, let's, let's just take Matthew's account of this. By and large, up to this point, Matthew and Luke's accounts are, are, are basically parallel with one another. But then in Matthew uh, 24, uh, is it verse 36? I'm going from memory here. There's this, there's this striking transitional phrase when Jesus says, now concerning that day. And Jesus begins to speak about, I think, his coming and final judgment when his power and glory will be revealed to all the earth. It's when he starts to speak in terms of the days of Noah and so forth. So what I think we have here in Luke is just part of Jesus' teaching focused on the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Jesus gave more teaching than that, but Luke doesn't record it because he doesn't have the same focus or the same concerns. We'll come back to that in just a second. Let me give you reason five in a couple sentences. Because everything following this talk about signs of sun, moon, stars, and so forth, everything following that, it's still abundantly clear that the direct audience is you, not you, but the you Jesus is speaking to. Uh, verse 28, verse 31, verse 36. See the context is still what's going to happen within the lifetime of that generation. He's telling them what to do, how to respond when cataclysmic judgment comes. Now does that mean does that mean Luke didn't believe that Jesus is going to return one day? Of course not. Of course not. Luke believed that Jesus was going to return one day and judge all the earth and bring in the new heavens and the new earth. It's just not the focus of this discourse at this point. Reason number six, Luke chose, this is a a, a little bit of, I I hope, sanctified imagination. Luke chose this selection, I think, from, from this larger discourse for a strategic purpose. Let me try to explain to you what I mean by that. Remember, remember, Luke wrote this gospel to a particular individual. An individual by the name of Theophilus. And recall that Luke wrote this gospel to Theophilus for a particular purpose. In order that Theophilus might know with certainty the things he had been taught. Luke wanted Theophilus to become a committed Christian. So here's my thinking. I think Luke is being very careful not to distract Theophilus with, you know, all of these discussions about what will take place at the end of the world. But instead, he chose to focus on something that would occur very likely in the lifetime of Theophilus. It's almost as though Luke is saying, believe in Jesus, Theophilus, or else believe him at least on account of his works. And let me tell you about one of his works. Okay, Luke was probably writing his gospel sometime in the mid 60s. Remember the fall of Jerusalem occurred in 70 AD. <clears throat> so let's imagine this for a minute. You're Theophilus and you've received this gospel from your friend Luke. And you're reading about the teaching and works of the Lord Jesus and then you get to this section, there were no chapters, but you get to what we call chapter 21 you're reading about these signs in the run-up to the fall of Jerusalem these earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and and Theophilus is thinking I've been reading in the news about all of these things happening in in the Roman Empire And, and then he keeps going and Jesus is speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the desecration of the temple and this alarm starts going off in Theophilus's mind. I just, I just heard about the news of General Titus and his men going down to Jerusalem and destroying the city of Jerusalem and, and uh, desecrating the temple of the Jews. You see what Luke is doing. He is planting a time bomb in Theophilus's mind as he's reading this in, let's say, the mid-60s and just a few years later. All of this occurs. And do you see what the effect would be? Oh, this Jesus, he really spoke the truth. You know, Luke wrote this a few years ago for me, but Jesus spoke these words some almost 40 years ago. And here they are coming to pass. He must truly be the Son of God. And maybe maybe there's a lesson here too when it comes to our thinking about evangelism and our discussions with unbelievers. Because <laughs> I think Luke is trying to communicate truth about Jesus in such a way that Theophilus will know that Jesus is utterly trustworthy. But you know, sometimes, I wonder if it's ever gone this way for you. Maybe you've gotten into discussions with a neighbor, unbeliever, and you went into it with good intentions, but somehow the, the discussion took a turn. And and somehow you got pulled into this discussion, which turned into a debate, which uh, downgraded to a heated disagreement about predestination, something like that. And you come walking away from the discussion thinking, you thickhead. What a dummy. I mean, this person is miles away from being a Christian and barely understands, doesn't even understand the basic fundamentals of the gospel. And I got distracted like that. You see, as Luke writes to Theophilus, he's not so concerned about you know, details surrounding the end of this age. He's more concerned that Theophilus be sure that Jesus spoke the truth and really meant what he said. And I think that's why Luke has this particular focus in his gospel in a way that Matthew and Mark don't. Now, Jesus goes on to apply what he taught uh, his disciples. Okay, what do you do? This is coming. It's coming in your lifetime. What do you do, guys? Watch and pray. That's what Jesus tells them. Watch and pray. Now you think, okay, that's pretty obvious, Jesus. You've got something more? Well, is it really that obvious? Because what happens just a few days later in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus says, watch and pray? We know how that went. And so they needed to be warned. They needed to be told to stay alert and be faithful in prayer. All right, well, I know that the sermon today has been a little bit different than your normal, uh, your normal dinings here. We've been trying to do our best to understand this passage uh, from the perspective of Jesus' original hearers. So all of us are asking the question, so what? Uh, It's a good question to ask. So what? Is this the one sermon preached at Trinity about which you can say, this has nothing to do with me? Because it's all been fulfilled. It's all happened. You know better than that. (laughs) No. So let's just say a few things here. I think actually this passage has a lot to say to us. First of all, as we look back to this event of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, We see that as Jesus says in this passage, that this is an act of divine judgment for refusing God's final prophet. That's what this is. That's what it was, an act of judgment for refusing the Messiah, for refusing the Christ. Now that certainly speaks to all of us here today. Secondly, it speaks to us along these lines. It was a powerful indication by God that there is only one priest and sacrifice. There's only one priest and sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of all people in all ages. And so the the symbols, the, the anticipatory symbols carried out in the temple were no longer going to go on because the true priest had come And laid down his life as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of the sins of his people. And so it's as if God is wrapping the whole thing up. And saying he's not going to have these sacrifices offered. When his son has come and offered himself as the once for all sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. There's another thing, another element to this passage. I think it's a really sobering thing to reflect upon that Jerusalem's desolation, that's how it's described, a desolation. Jerusalem's desolation was a sign that demonstrated that Jesus Christ is king of all the earth. See, God never, God never meant his kingdom to be confined to, to one people and one nation. And if that one people and one nation rejected his purposes that his son be the savior of men, women, boys and girls from every tribe, people, language and tongue, then God would deconsecrate Jerusalem and the temple in order to internationalize the dominion of the son of man to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, one other thing here, does this mean everything, if If the way I've explained this passage is the right way of reading it, does that mean that it doesn't teach us anything about the final return of Christ? No. It tells us that if this is what happened when the Son of Man came in judgment upon one city, then how fearful of a thing it will be when the Son of Man comes in judgment upon the whole world. That's one of the reasons, dear friends, that as servants of the King, we need to be faithfully serving the Lord because the coming of Christ is the next great event on the calendar where the power and glory of the Son of Man will be demonstrated to the entire earth. So let's not panic. Uh, Let's not be surprised when the gospel is opposed let's look to the Lord Jesus Christ the son of man who has been given dominion in order that the nations of this world might serve him and friends let's be let's be eternally grateful for the fact that his his gracious rule has extended to us so that we have been gathered by God and are being built as God's final temple, where we will praise and worship him forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage and what it teaches us. Uh, We don't pretend to think that we understand this passage in all of its details, but we thank you for what it reveals to us about the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that it Reveals to us that you have internationalized his dominion so that the good news of salvation may go forth until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ has come to us in his rule and reign and subdued our hearts. And Lord Jesus, we, we pray and cry out to you that you would continue that work in our lives and in our community In our city, in our neighborhoods, among our friends and our neighbors, bring people to bow before you, our good and gracious and loving King. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.